0: We've been looking at Romans for the last uh, more than a year and we're going to finish Romans by the time Advent season starts this year. Uh, So we'll finish sometime uh, in November and since we're going to be diving back into Romans chapter 10 and we're actually in doing that we're in the middle of kind of in the middle of a unit chapters 9 10 and 11 are considered a a unit in in uh, the book of Romans and so we're diving back in in the middle so I want to kind of just bring us up to speed contextually so that we know where we are. Uh, One of the things I love about the letter that Paul writes to the church at Rome is the way he begins. Uh, He begins in the normal Mediterranean first century Greek letter writing style where he says, I am Paul and I'm writing to you. Uh, The problem is with this, this letter to the church in Rome is he gets out, I am Paul, an apostle called to be a servant of Christ, and then it takes him seven verses before he ever gets to the part where he says, and I'm writing to you, the saints that are in Rome. And the reason is because he is so excited and so determined to tell the church in Rome about the gospel, to preach the gospel to them, that, that, that verses 1b and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 are, are him just preaching the gospel. He says, I'm Paul and let me tell you about Jesus. It, 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 he is just so excited about that. And it's not until verse 7 that he says, Oh, by the way, I'm writing to you who are in Rome. And so it's just filled with the gospel. Uh, some scholars call the letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome the gospel of Paul, that it's like the fifth gospel. And then he gets to verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1, and that's where his thesis statement is. That's, that's the heart of this letter, and it's, and it's what the rest of the letter unpacks, and this is what he says. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, not just the Jew, but also the Greek. And it's interesting that that in today's passage, we're looking at the first 13 verses of chapter 10. That last verse, chapter 13, also says the same thing, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, anybody who places their faith in Jesus will be saved, neither Jew nor Gentile. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are, what your identity is, you can be saved by calling on Jesus. And so this is what he unpacks during this entire letter. And then you you see right away in verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through most of chapter 3 right up until uh, verse 20, what he does is there is he gives us the theology of man, the theology of human beings. And essentially what he tells us uh, in those chapters is uh, man, human beings, we are sinful, we are moralistic, and we are religious. We can't escape any of those. We're sinful, we're moralistic, and we're religious. And in the midst of that, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Even though most of us believe that self-salvation, self-exaltation, self-righteousness is really the way to be saved, he says you can't do anything. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God, and the only way you can bridge that gap, the only way you can be reconciled to God, the only way you can find righteousness and salvation is through Jesus Christ and placing your faith in him. And so that's what he says in chapter 3, verses 21-22. 26 that all are justified if they are justified by grace as a gift through faith in jesus christ jesus is the only gospel jesus is the only good news and then chapters four through seven just unpack that whole idea of justification by grace through faith, salvation by grace through faith. That, that we can't be saved by works or self-righteousness or a righteousness of our own or a righteousness that is through the law. We can't be saved by any of those. And then he gets to chapter eight where he describes our identity as Christians for those of us who are in Christ. And chapter eight is great because it starts right out of the gate, and he says, if you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation for you. That's a wonderful fact and promise. And then the chapter ends with, if you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. So it starts with no condemnation. It ends with nothing can separate us from the love of God. And everything in between that is all about our identity in Christ and the promises that God makes to us. That, that, that God did through Christ what the law could not do for us. That we are adopted sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. That, that we have an inheritance that we are going to share with Jesus Christ. That, that this glory that is going to come to us is going to be better than any of the suffering that we, that we encounter here on this earth. And, and that God has predestined us to become conformed to the image of his Son. It is just an unbelievable chapter, but then Paul recognizes that he has to do to, to deal with what scholars call the problem of Israel well well, what about Israel? What about god 's chosen people? What about the those Jews who are not saved, who are not going to be participating in this? and so that 's what Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are about is, is the problem of Israel. Has God's word failed? Paul would say, no, it has not failed. How, how, do, the, how, do, the, how do the Jews and the Gentiles fit together in, in the midst of this justification by faith in Christ? H- how does all of that work? And Paul starts this section in chapter 9 by expressing his unceasing anguish and sorrow that he has in his heart for his kinsmen who are falling short because they believe that their righteousness is through the law and not through faith in Jesus Christ. That they are missing the boat and he wants them saved. And he starts his argument in chapter 9, which is very challenging and we've been through this, uh, about how you have to understand that, that God's word has not failed because God is sovereign and God sovereignly elects his people and he does it through his mercy. So God's word has not failed. And then we get to chapter 10 and chapter 10 is still this discussion of of. Of Paul talking about what, he, what do we do with his kinsmen? He, he, he prays for their salvation. He wants them to be saved, and God's word still has not failed, yet the Jews' pursuit of their own righteousness through the law has failed them. That's what we're going to be looking at in chapter 10. The other thing about chapter 10 that's interesting is that while we see uh, God's election taught in chapter 9, in chapter 10 what we see is man's responsibility and man's fault for their sin taught in chapter 10. And this creates tension. Many of us look at chapter nine and say, well, if God sovereignly elects us, how could I possibly be held responsible for my sin? But Paul says, no, 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 you don't get to be off the hook that easily. I know, especially as Americans, we enjoy passing the buck And trying to blame other people for our shortfalls? Not Paul. Paul says in chapter 10 very clearly, you're the one with the problem. And even though God sovereignly elects, you still have a responsibility in the midst of this. Douglas Moo, who is um, uh, one of the great Romans commentators, uh, writes this about this tension. He says, Unconditional divine election and human responsibility stand side by side in Scripture and neither cancel nor mitigate the other. And so today, our primary text is actually verses 5 through 13. W- weeks ago, we already looked at verses 1 through 4. And so our primary text is verses 5 through 13. And the big idea for these nine verses would be this. God's salvation plan has always been through Jesus and belief in Him is the only way. God's salvation plan has always been through Jesus and belief in him is the only way in other words righteousness is based solely on faith in Jesus Christ but In order to fully understand and appreciate verses five through 13, what Paul is saying there, we have to go back and get contextualized with verses one through four. Because verses five through 13 is actually unpacking and explaining what he means in verse four that Christ is the end of of the law for those who are now righteous. So we have to go back and look at verses one through four. So let's start there. That's why we had David read uh, all 13 of these verses. So let's look again, starting in, in Romans 10, verses one through four. Paul writes, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for my kinsmen, for the Jews, is that they may be saved. So again, Paul reiterates. It's like going back to the beginning of, verse, of chapter nine. He reiterates that his heart is with his kinsmen. He wants them to be saved, his desire, his prayer even. Even though God sovereignly elects, Paul is still in there praying for his brothers and sisters. He's saying, I want them to be saved. And 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 let me just mention this. In these thirteen verses here, those of you who have sort of an allergy to the word saved, I, I know that I know that in Christian culture, many of us don't like that word saved. I, I maybe it's because you've heard too many guys like me use it with, with too many syllables. You need to be saved. And it just it's just like it's like, you know. It just grates on you or whatever saved is a biblical word he uses it four times in these 13 verses and he wants people to be saved we need to be saved and we're gonna talk today about being saved so so he says it's my heart's desire and prayer that they be saved for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he starts verse one by reiterating his his heart's desire that they may be saved, but then he line lists all the reasons why his brothers and sisters that are Jewish are missing the point and they're not being saved. And there's three of them, starting with verse two. Here's the first one. They had a misplaced zeal. Their zeal was misplaced. Now, the Jews were very zealous. And we have not only Paul's testimony in Scripture that that they were zealous, but we also have history's testimony. We know from history that last week, remember, we talked about the return from the exile? We know from history that when those Jews returned from exile, they were very zealous during those 400 years leading up to the birth of christ they were very zealous for god they were very zealous for the law they were as zealous as they ever had been they were zealous in the face of the uh, uh, of the um the, the greek invasions they were so desperately zealous they were awesome in zeal awesome in works awesome in the law but they still missed the mark and the lesson for us today in that is really simple but needs to be said. Just because a person is zealous or sincere or real or authentic or has a, a, a great passion, that does not mean that they are justified. It doesn't mean that they're saved. It does not mean that they have things figured out. In fact, very often somebody's zeal or passion is actually a cover for the fact that they're very unsure of what they're talking about. Zealous people can still be lost people. It depends on what you're zealous for. Sincere people can actually be sincerely what? Wrong. Yeah. See, the problem is, is that our faith, our belief, our trust, our zeal, our passion, whatever you want to call it, is only as good as what you place it in. You can have zeal, you can have passion, but it must be correctly directed. If you, here you go, I got a couple of sports illustrations today. Sorry about that for those of you that don't like them, but you'll get them, okay? If you zealously believe that the Miami Heat this year were going to win their third straight NBA title, it's not that your zeal and your belief and your faith in the Miami Heat was necessarily deficient, but it was the Miami Heat who were deficient. Those of you that are San Antonio Spurs fans, can I get an amen from you, Okay. No, 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 no. San Antonio was just better. Okay, I get all that. But nevertheless, it wasn't your zeal that was wrong. It was it, it was misdirected though because the heat could not come through. If If you place your faith in somebody to deliver something to you that you desperately need and they don't deliver it, it's not that your faith was necessarily deficient, but rather the person who was supposed to deliver that didn't come through for you and that person was deficient. So when it comes to Life and sin and redemption and restoration, Jesus is what is real. You do not have a misdirected faith or worldview or zeal if you've placed it in Jesus Christ. So your faith, your sincerity, your zeal in your ability to be a moral person, in your ability to keep a code or to, to, to pursue the law or to, to align yourself with the right cause or to do good works, all, all of that is actually empty because of what you're placing it in. It's not directed towards Christ. It's never gonna deliver to you what you want it to deliver. Here's how we would say it. Sincerity never trumps the truth of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as justification by zeal. And and by the way, this is being written by probably the most zealous person in the history of the world. Paul had zeal like you wouldn't believe. You can read about it in Scripture. Paul was so zealous for the law that he actually went out and killed Christians. That's how zealous he was, but he was wrong. He was wrong and misdirected and misguided in that zeal. Second of all, verse 3 tells us that the Jews sought a righteousness of their own. Now, I would argue that when you seek a, a righteousness of your own through whatever means it is, the law or a cause or moralism or whatever it is, that's just an, ex, an extension of really having zeal for yourself, of, of believing in yourself, of exalting yourself. And, and I would suggest that this has been a human problem since humans it it was a problem in the garden it was the reason why uh, Adam and Eve fell in the first place that they had a zeal for themselves and really it goes to to this whole idea of we've talked a lot in the last few weeks about being stiff-necked or being uh, being stubborn it's the person with the unredeemed mind who who you 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 share the gospel with them the good news of Jesus Christ divine grace you don't have to do anything for this And, and they respond by saying hey listen I know what's best for me I can do it Uh, I'm a good person. I'm what's best for me. No one is going to tell me what to do. Uh, Robert Mounts, another commentator, writes this. Deeply ingrained in people's hostility to divine grace is proud and stubborn self-reliance. A self-reliance, and I love this line, a self-reliance that would rather suffer loss than be denied the opportunity to boast in self. See, those those people who find a righteousness of their own through whatever methodology it is, part of the reason they like that is because then they get to boast in themselves. And Paul constantly tells us, you're not to boast in yourself. You are to boast in Christ. Christ is the way. And so they they sought a righteousness of their own. They had a misplaced zeal. And then number three is in verse four, like so many people, they missed Jesus and misunderstood the law. That's exactly what Paul is saying when he writes in verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's what he means. He's saying they they missed Jesus and misunderstood the law. And we need to make sure that we define and interpret and understand that word end correctly. A lot of people look at that word end, Christ is the end of the law, and, and they think that what that means is that we don't need the law anymore, the law's not valuable anymore, it's the end of the, uh, the law is, is no longer needed, we can get rid of the law, and that's not it at all. It's the Greek word telos, which actually means goal or fulfillment. So what Paul is saying is, is, is Jesus is, is the fulfillment of the law. He's the perfect exemplar of the law. He is the one who actually made the goal of the law, which nobody else can do. So the law is still important. It's still needed. It's still valuable. But, Paul, but, but Jesus has fulfilled that law and therefore righteousness comes through him. And then what happens in verses 5 through 13 is Paul unpacks Exactly what he means in verse 4. Verse 4 is like his thesis statement for the next nine verses. So let me read those verses and then we'll dive into those. Verse 5 For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and on your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you could kind of split this up into three sections, essentially. In verses 5 through 8, Paul is saying, here's how the Jews have misunderstood the law. And then verses 9, 10, and 11 is Paul, if you'll pardon the pun, Paul is saying this is the heart of the gospel. You must trust. You must believe. You must have faith in Jesus Christ. And then verses 12 and 13 are actually the target of the gospel. The target of the gospel is everyone. Everyone is invited for all who believe, anyone who believes. And we need to understand that that as offensive as it was for Paul to tell the Jews that they had misunderstood the law, this was equally as offensive that, that this new covenant included everybody and that they didn't have to go through Judaism in order to get there. That's offensive also to the Jews. So we begin to walk through this. We look at verse 5 and we see that verse 5 is Paul alluding to uh, Leviticus chapter 18 where Paul is saying essentially this. He's saying yes, yes. It's true. In theory, in theory, you can achieve righteousness by keeping the law. In theory. But the problem is is that nobody has ever, ever kept the law. Nobody is able to keep the law. We are born into sin. And so that doesn't work. In theory, that's true. But it's not true at all otherwise. In fact, he would say, go back and read what I wrote in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and you will see... No one is righteous, no not one, no one is good, no one pursues after God, no one is seeking after God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Why do so many people miss this point? That that we can't save ourselves through whatever method it is that we're trying to save ourselves. Kent Hughes, who has also written a, a wonderful commentary on the book of Romans, he claims that it is because it simply does not jibe with the concept of self elevation this idea that divine grace is what saves us that unmerited favor is what saves us does not line up with you and I and our desire for self elevation to be a promoter of self to find our salvation in ourself to figure it out for our self this is this is a huge issue it, it's, it's the religion of self. In fact, if you haven't heard this term, you need to look around for it because it's out there now. It's, it's the religion of me-ism. Me-ism. And I know some people will hear this and, and you'll say, but wait, wait, wait a minute, preacher man. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a religious person. I pride myself on the fact that I'm not a religious person. I might be a little bit spiritual, but I'm certainly not religious. And I would answer to you and say, yes, you are. I'm religious, you're religious, we are all religious. We are all moralistic. At some point, if I spend enough time with you, I'm gonna get to something that violates your code of religion or or, or morality and watch out because you're gonna go off on me when I get to that point. Whatever it might be. We might be able to coexist for 20 years, and I not be able to scratch that little area. But eventually, at some point, you're gonna you're gonna say, "Oh, oh, 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 oh. that's a violation right there." We are all religious. We are all moralistic. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago that, I, and I finished the book. Since then, I was reading. Um, Greg Epstein's book. Greg Epstein is the humanist chaplain at Harvard University. Perhaps uh, Eugene Scott will meet with him and get to know him a little bit when he's there, but he's the humanist chaplain at at Harvard University, and he wrote a book called Good Without God. Uh, In other words, uh, we don't need God, okay? And the subtitle is What a Billion Non-Religious People Do Believe what a billion meaning there's a billion non-religious people in the world by his estimation what do they believe and so i picked up this book because i would love to know what a billion non-religious people really do believe and 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 i would say that after reading the book and then after reading it i don't like to read reviews before i read a book because i don't want to be tainted by that but reading other reviews, I found that I wasn't the only one who made this observation. I feel that one place that the book failed is in its subtitle. I still really don't know what these billion non-religious people really do believe other than two things, okay? First of all, I know for certain because Epstein drills it in every single chapter over and over and over again, they don't believe in this book at all. They don't. So, in other words, he's defining what they do believe by what they don't believe, and that they don't believe that they. In fact, uh, Epstein would argue that Jesus was not even a real historical person. Okay. Here's the second thing that they believe, after reading this book, that if you're a humanist, if you're into the religion of meism, you're really a wonderful person. You're just a wonderful person pursuing truth and, 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 and really it's self-elevation, it's self-exaltation. That's what the book is. It's the religion of self. I, I, I frankly have never read a book about non-religious people that was so religious in its fervor and commitment to being non-religious. It was fascinating to me. And I don't say this disrespectfully. It's merely an observation in reading this book but non religious faith is at its core the religion of self. What else could it be? It's meism, it's humanism. And believe me, they are zealous. They are very, very zealous. So we go back to the Jews and we'd say it's not that the Jews were non religious, they had fervor for the law. But Paul makes it clear throughout the book of Romans and throughout all of his writings that the law does not bring righteousness, and that was never even its purpose. In Galatians chapter 3, he writes this So then, the law was our guardian. That word guardian can also be translated as a tutor designed to lead us to the truth, which is Jesus Christ. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That's what the law's job was. It was a guardian. It was a tutor to lead us to the truth. It wasn't necessarily the end in itself. And so what Paul is saying is righteousness by grace through faith and righteousness by works through are mutually exclusive and it's not that works aren't important but what we need to understand is that works always come as a result of our righteousness being found in Christ not as a means to become righteous in Christ there's a huge difference there we don't work and find ourselves approved by Jesus and then he saves us but rather he saves us and then we begin to work then we begin to work And again, let me mention this about immorality. I'll stand here and declare uh, being moral is much better than being immoral. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. But it's never going to save you. It's never the goal. It might make things a little bit better for a while, but it's not the deep truth that we are truly looking for, which is only found in Jesus Christ. It won't save, moralism will never save you. And Paul here is concerned with salvation. He uses that word four times. Did I mention that? Verse 1, verse 9, verse 10, verse 12. He wants you saved. On May 11th, Sean Myers preached a great sermon about the kingdom of God from Matthew chapter 13. And in that, one of the things that he hit so well was how uh, the gospel is for all of life and it's not just for salvation, but it's for sanctification and it's how you and I are to live as Christians every day. The gospel doesn't just save you, it also sanctifies you. All of life is all for Jesus. But this passage here, is keyed specifically on salvation specifically on justification specifically on knowing what that deep truth is that will reconcile you to god the father through jesus christ and so the question that must be asked by this passage of everybody who's here is are you saved are you saved if you want Redemption, salvation, deliverance, security, fulfillment, whatever it is you want to call it. You can call it whatever you want. If that's what you want, Jesus is the only gospel. He's the only way you need to place your faith in him. And then verses six through eight are are a loose quote of Deuteronomy, an Old Testament law passage, chapter 30, verses 12 through 14, that Paul uses to make one very simple point. And here's the point. Exerted moral striving will never save you. Specifically, he says there's, there's no need to travel to, to, to heaven to bring the Messiah to earth because God has already sent him to earth and there's no need to travel to the realm of the dead and bring the Messiah up because God has already raised Jesus from the dead. It's done. Place your faith in him. Verses six and seven remind us that sincere seeking is not the key a lot of people really think that's the key. I'm just, I'm just sincerely seeking and that will bring me fulfillment. No, it doesn't. That's not the key. You need to receive the gift of grace by faith. That's the key. And then verse eight, he, he just pounds it and it may be the most important part. He, he's explaining in verse eight, Paul is, that even in the Old Testament, the Jews had that message, that word right there. It was, it was near them. It was, it was part of their law. It was part of what they studied. It was Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. It's right there. It's, he, he's saying the word, the message, the truth, guys. It's always been there. It's always been right there in front of you and now it's nearer than ever. It's Jesus, y'all. That's what he's saying. You remember the in Luke 16, if you've read the Gospel of Luke, there's this great parable that you only find in Luke 16 of Lazarus and the rich man and so Lazarus and the rich man have this sort of upside down life here on earth. The rich man had all the glories and pleasures and and Lazarus had some problems. But then when they died, Lazarus ended up in, in Abraham's bosom in heaven and the rich man ended up in, in Hades, in hell and there was a great chasm between the two and so uh, the, the rich man says to God, tell Lazarus to, dick his, uh, to dip his hand in, in, in some cold water and touch my tongue to bring me some relief and God says, no, nah, can't do that, can't breach the chasm. And then he says, "Well then tell tell Lazarus to please send send a messenger or send himself to my brothers and tell them the truth so that they don't end up here like me." And what was God's response? He said, "Listen, Mr. Richman, your brothers have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. They have the word. They have the message. It's near to them. It's in their book." They should know this. They are missing it. You have what what you need. The word is near. You are responsible. How are you missing the word? And I would ask you the same thing. How are you missing the word? If you're not a Christian today, how are you missing it? It's right here in your face. And in verses 9 and 10, the heart of the gospel actually unpack verse 8. The gospel is attained by faith. In verse nine, Paul talks about the importance of confessing your faith by mouth, by, of, of speaking your faith out loud. I, I, I've had a number of these conversations with people the last couple of weeks uh, leading up to this. Um, in our culture today, it seems very important that people tell uh, Christians and people of faith that, that we're to keep our, our faith and our declaration of Jesus out of the public sphere. That we're, we're to have our faith is a private matter and we're just to keep it to ourselves and we should just be quiet about it. You ever wonder why that's so important to them? Well, one reason is that research has actually shown, and I can show you the research, that if you never say anything out loud, it becomes less real. If we practice our faith in private, if we never talk about it, if we never do it in community, if we never tell others about it, it eventually falls away. The accoutrements of the faith begin to fall away. It it becomes less real. Paul wants our faith to be real. Something happens when you declare out loud in front of a group of people that you believe in Jesus and that it's the power of Jesus that is preventing you from from falling to temptation or or leading you down this path in the marketplace that other people wouldn't necessarily go down. That's way different than practicing a private faith. We, we, We lose our faith, not... Not necessarily in a salvation way, but, it, but, in a, but in a sanctifying way. We lose our faith when we forsake the corporate gathering of church. This, this is right here. We're confessing our faith out loud. We, we lose our faith when we forsake community with other believers. Uh, Eugene said it. You need to be in an RC. You need to be in community with other believers. But not only that, we, we lose our faith when we quit praying and when we quit praying out loud. And we lose our faith when we stop telling others about Jesus. And we lose our faith when we quit living by the power of the Holy Spirit in terms of temptation and in terms of marketplace decisions. The gospel should be, should be pushing us in the marketplace, not restricting us. The, go- the gospel should be how we live our life in the marketplace. And we should be unashamed, and I know that means there's going to be penalties and punishments. I get that. But consider this, the penalty and punishment of confessing with your mouth out loud that you believed in Jesus in the first century in Rome was treason, the crime was treason, it was sedition, and it was a capital crime. If you confess that anybody other than Caesar was Lord, you could be executed. So, So we need to declare out loud and tell others, all of life is all for Jesus, and that doesn't happen if it's a private faith that's only kept to yourself. And by the way, this is also true. Let me just say this. It's also true of confessing sin. Scripture tells us all the time that we need to confess our sin out loud to one another. That we need to sp- speak about our sin out loud. The, 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 this is an imp- the, the word confess is homologon, which is same word. It's agreeing with God that you have sinned. That's what it is. You're agreeing with God that I did this sin. And you're saying it out loud, not just to God, but to a brother or sister in Christ. And the reason that we need to do that is because if we don't, here you go, I'll just tell you from personal experience. If I don't confess my sin out loud, the sin is less real. I can rationalize it away a lot easier. I can put it away. I can compartmentalize it. I can say, well, uh, I'm just like everybody else. I do that. Everybody does that. And I don't need to worry about it. But the minute I sit down with somebody and I say, all right, here's what I'm dealing with. Then I'm held accountable. It becomes real. I have to deal with it. And that's a good thing. That's part of the sanctifying fires of testing our faith. We need to do that. Our sin becomes more real when we confess it, when we testify to it out loud. So this is true in all of these things. We need to proclaim our faith. We need to speak it. We need to confess our sin. We need to speak it. And Paul also says you need to believe in your heart. And this is important, too. I found that this is important. Even teaching at Fuller Seminary, I found that this is important. We need to understand when Paul says, believe in your heart, he's not talking about your heart organ. That's not what he's talking about here. Uh, Chip and Dan Heath, who are both PhDs, one of them's at uh, Stanford, and they've written a, a number of books. And four or five years ago, they wrote a great book called Switch. And in that book, they felt compelled to explain to their readers that it is physiologically impossible to believe anything in your heart. That's not what the heart was made for. And that when we talk about believing or feeling or speaking or thinking in our heart, that what we're really talking about is in a biblical sense, and I don't even think that Chip and Dan Heath are Christians, but in a biblical sense, the word means who you are at your core. What is your identity? what's your guts what's your soul who are you really the gospel is going to change that The, the gospel doesn't change some behavior on the outside and not deal with your insides the gospel changes who you are at your core it changes you from the inside out and you can't help it look at how it changed Paul Paul used to kill Christians now he's considered the greatest church planter in the history of the church He had a radical change, and that came from the inside out. And then he says, listen, belief and confession, those two things are absolutely inseparable. We confess what we really believe. If you really believe this, frankly, I don't need to admonish you to say it out loud because you're going to say it out loud. If you really believe this you're going to talk about jesus it's going to be part of your regular uh uh, nomenclature it's it's just going to whatever you do it's going to be about jesus we follow what we really believe we cannot change our hearts no matter how here here, here's another all right one more sports example here you go so best part of the year for me is late spring stanley cup playoffs for those of you that have no idea what a stanley cup is it's the national hockey league's championship uh, uh, trophy okay really cool trophy, all right? And I love hockey, all right? So one of the downsides this year was in the semifinals, the Blackhawks, the Chicago Blackhawks lost. That's my team. I lived in Chicago for four years. I had season tickets. I love the Blackhawks. They lost to the Los Angeles Kings. And so the Kings played the Rangers in the finals, the New York Rangers. And I recognize every, all of my friends, uh, all of my family, they, they had the right case, informationally, cognitively. You have to root for the New York Rangers. That's the team that needs to win. We got to beat the Los Angeles Kings, okay? And I knew that cognitively. I knew that as a, as a matter of fact and evidence. But I got to tell you something. I just, I like the Kings. The Kings are in my heart. They're in my guts. They're in my soul. And I couldn't help myself. And so I would watch those five games with all these Rangers fans and I couldn't help myself. The kings would score and I would dance and I would get food thrown at me and people would not invite me to their house anymore, but I couldn't help myself. And listen to this, listen guys, I'm talking about hockey. I'm not even talking about something that's important like like football or basketball. The gospel will change who you are. From the inside out, you can't help yourself. And because it's your heart, because it's your core, because it's your soul, the only thing that can do it is the Holy Spirit. You can't try hard enough to change yourself. You gotta submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. You gotta embrace Christ. You can't just sit there and go, what are you doing, Frank? I'm just trying really hard to believe Jesus. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. My, my parents have grapefruit trees, okay? I never walked by the grapefruit tree and heard the grapefruit tree going, oh, I got to make these grapefruit. It just made grapefruit. That's who we are. If we have the gospel, we become people who confess with our mouths because we believe in our heart. And what is it that we're believing and confessing? Two things. That Jesus is Lord and that he's been raised from the dead. These these two things are also inseparable. The resurrection validates his lordship. C.E.B. Cranfield writes this magnificent little paragraph about the lordship of Jesus Christ. He says this, his lordship declares that Jesus shares the name as well as the nature, the holiness, the authority, the power, the majesty, and the eternity with the one and only true God. And then he quotes John chapter 10, I and the Father, we are one. I am the Father. We are one and the same. We are, we are the same essence. We are exactly the same. And if you doubt that Jesus was, was making a claim to divinity there, that he was saying, I am God, then explain to me why right after that, the Jews picked up stones to kill Jesus because he had blasphemed. He made a claim that he is God. And this resurrection validates that claim. He is Lord. The resurrection also shows that we do not serve a dead Lord. He's alive. He's alive. And then verse 11 is that, just quickly, that thing about shame. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. All the commentators said this, it's a juxtaposition. They all said essentially the same thing and and this is what it is. Those who do not trust Christ do not experience shame now in this world, but they will on the day of judgment. But those who do trust Christ today we're gonna experience some ridicule. We're gonna experience exposure, scorn, disappointment, rejection, persecution, and shame in a fallen world because we've aligned ourselves with what the world would call the foolishness of Christ. But on that day of judgment, in God's presence, we will experience no shame. And then verses 12 and 13, the gospel target. Very simply, all are invited. All are invited, not all are saved. But all are most certainly invited. The word is near you. And it's as though God is speaking through Paul specifically to the Jews and saying this listen, you guys. I chose you and blessed you so that you could be a blessing. Your problem is is that you took that blessing and you did two things with it that were wrong. Number one, you hoarded the blessing to yourself. You never shared it with anybody. And number two, most of you actually ignored the blessing and turned away from me and started worshiping false gods. In either case, you never shared the blessing. You never became the light to the world that that I was calling you to be. And so here's the reality now. Everyone is invited in the new covenant. Christ is savior for all who believe. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I ask you this question, are are you relying on yourself for salvation today? Uh, Are are you deceived by your own religiosity or better yet, are you deceived by your non-religiosity? Almost every time that Paul speaks of of when he admonishes people in his letters in the New Testament, "Do not be deceived." Almost every time, the Greek word there is actually uh, the word that is that that should be translated: "Do not deceive yourself." Do not engage in self-deception. Who is the who is our favorite person to deceive in the whole world? It's ourselves. He says, don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself with this idea that you're non-religious or that your religiosity is gonna save you, your pursuit of some moral code. If you think you're okay, but you're really headed for trouble, it could end very badly. I'm gonna close with this. This is a, a, a little story from, from uh, James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on, on Romans. L- listen to this. Some of you might even, well, some of you who are old like me might remember this. The Edmund Fitzgerald was a Great Lakes freighter nearly 1,000 feet long, almost as long as the Empire State Building in New York City is high. She had sailed to Duluth, Minnesota to pick up iron ore, and now, during the first week of November 1975, she was making her way across Lake Superior to the Sioux Locks to bring the ore to the industrial cities of the south. The first day out, a terrible storm moved down out of Canada to the Great Lakes. That is common enough on the Great Lakes in the winter months, but this was a particularly bad storm with Waves that hit 25 to 30 feet high. The captain of the freighter that was following the Edmund Fitzgerald, from whom we have sworn testimony as to what happened, was very worried. Somewhere along the way, the Fitzgerald began to take on water and developed an increasingly strong list to the starboard side. She sank low in the water. The captain of the other ship, who could see behind what was going on, kept in, kept in radio and radar contact, but the Fitzgerald's captain kept reporting that everything was all right. Everything is fine. The last communication from the doomed freighter was this tragic message. We are holding our own. We are holding our own. Minutes later, the ship headed into a wave that washed over her low-lying deck's And she never came up. In less than 10 seconds, the Edmund Fitzgerald sank with the loss of all 27 people aboard. The captain of the ship that was following reported that she simply disappeared from his radar screen. One minute she was there, the next she was gone forever. The prop that was still turning, driving her directly downward until she broke into pieces on the lake bottom. If you have not called on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, your state is like that of the stricken freighter. You are headed into judgment and you have no idea. Do not say, I am holding my own. We're going to close with our time of worship and communion, but we're also going to close by having um, Cody and the band come out. They have a song specially prepared that is based specifically on Romans chapter 10, verse 13. I think you're going to enjoy this and we're going we're to move into that now.